But how many of you are familiar with the prank, the famous prank that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the uh, creator of Sherlock Holmes, played on some of his friends? Are you familiar with the prank? You don't know the prank I'm talking about, but uh, the story goes that he decided to send a message to five of his friends. Uh, it was delivered anonymously, no signature, no other information. The message simply read, all is discovered, flee at once. And allegedly, within 24 hours, all five who received the message had fled the country, one of them never ever to be seen again. Now, in reality, this, this is probably just an urban myth, but it's power lies in the fact that probably, let's face it, we can all relate to the fear of being found out. The truth is, not a single one of us in this room is completely faultless. At some point in our lives, we've all made mistakes, we all have regrets, we're all ashamed of something. But rather than bring it out into the open, I think what we tend to do is deny our guilt. We repress it, we perhaps blame others for it, we excuse it, we justify it, we rationalize it. As a result, we probably never fully deal with our guilt. Instead, a lot of us carry it around. Sometimes very consciously, often unconsciously. Came across this article online, six signs that you're suffering from guilt and probably don't know it. Got to warn you, it's not a cheery article, uh, but see if you can recognize that any of these things. Number one, close relationships don't last. There's such a deep wound, such a deep dissatisfaction that people can't really ever get close to you because you're afraid they might touch or poke that wound. Number two, you're chronically tired and distracted because all the time you're carrying around this huge burden. Number three, you perhaps have a tendency to speak harshly about others, thinking that in tearing them down, in some way you'll make yourself feel better. Fourthly, you have a tendency to respond dramatically or in an extreme way to other people's criticism of you. Fifth, you're paranoid about what everyone's thinking about you because you project the bad things you think about yourself into what they're thinking. And sixthly, <laughs> relief, this is the last one, you sabotage your own efforts, whether at work or in relationships or wherever, because you feel like you don't deserve to succeed, and so you preempt it all by wrecking it all. Now look, whether or not you recognize any of those traits in yourself, or maybe in other people, I don't know, if we're going to live free from all of this stuff, we have got to learn how to deal with guilt. So let me ask you, if there was a way for your conscience to be completely cleansed, for all of those feelings of guilt and shame to be done away with forever, would you be interested? Well, if so, today could be your lucky day. Because regardless of your past, Regardless of all the mistakes you have made in your life up until this point, today's passage explains how you can, in reality, know and experience a clean conscience. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to be in Hebrews 
chapter 9. Just to explain the first half of this chapter, the author describes in quite a lot of detail the Old Testament sacrificial system and explains for us how the whole temple was set up to try to deal with this problem of our guilt. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 9. That first covenant back in the Old Testament between God and Israel had regulations for worship, and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the Ark's cover, the place of atonement. But We cannot explain these things in detail now. One wonders what he would have explained if he had the time, but I guess we'll never know. Verse 6, when these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and even then only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that are in effect only until a better system could be established. Now look, thinking that what we've just read, this whole system in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, thinking that that was all the time what God had in mind as the final scheme for dealing with our guilt would be kind of like a visitor to Birmingham mistaking all the roadworks around the city centre for the finished article. I mean, have any of you ever tried driving into the city centre in the last year or two? Ever tried it? I I suppose it's a bit of a nightmare, isn't it? First there was the Paradise Circus redevelopment, then there was the tram line going in down Broad Street, now there's the havoc being caused for those who live in the south of the city by the laying of the cycle path down the Bristol Road, I'm sure it's all going to be great when it's finished. I hear some whoops even at the prospect of that. But in the meantime, there is no option but to put up with all the temporary roads and all the diversions. Now, in many respects, that is a picture of what's going on here in Hebrews chapter 9. The writer is going to go on and show us God's blueprint, God's overall master plan for dealing with all those feelings of guilt and shame 
that, as we've already seen, wrecks so many of our relationships. He's going to present us with a pretty stunning picture of the whole landscape when all of the work is concluded. It's a place where we have a clear route, clear access right into the very presence of God without being hindered, without being hampered in any way by a guilty conscience. But for all sorts of reasons which... I think probably we may struggle to understand this couldn't all be done at once. It's like temporary arrangements had to be put in place to keep things moving, to keep things flowing until the appointed time. And as, if you come back next week, Rich will explain in a whole lot more detail for you, this whole complex system of the tabernacle, which we've just read with the altar and the ark and the lampstand and the loaves of bread and the cherubim and its curtains separating the outer room from the most holy place and all those regulations surrounding sacrifices and blood and cleansing ceremonies. This all served a purpose. For starters, if nothing else, it shows how incredibly seriously God views sin and also how determined he is to find a solution for it. But even more than all of that, and what I want to show you today is how it points us to Jesus. If you like, what's happened in Jesus is that the main route, the main road from one side of the city to the other has now been opened up. Wherever you are, wherever you live, whatever your postcode, whatever your background, whatever your history, it's now possible to travel all the way into the heart of the city, all the way into the very presence of God. It's not that the old system or the old roads were a bad thing, it's just that in Jesus their purpose has now been accomplished. In Jesus, the great high priest, God has now put things into proper order at long last. He has made a way for our guilt and our shame and those feelings of condemnation to be fully and finally dealt with. Verse 11, so Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. What I want to do in the time that remains is show you three things that the blood of Jesus does with our guilt that that old temporary system in the Old Testament never could do. Here's the first thing. The blood of Jesus takes us from guilt to purity. From guilt to purity. 
You know, sometimes you hear people, don't you, say that the main point of the cross is it shows us, it demonstrates to us how much Jesus loves us. But if you think about it, that makes no sense at all without an understanding of how Jesus' death dealt with our sin. I mean, if I'm walking down the road with Helen, my wife, and I turn to her and say, do you want to know how much I love you? And I then throw myself into incoming traffic. That is not really the most loving thing to do, is it? My death doesn't demonstrate anything of love for her. I mean, it's a crazy thing to do. It only shows I perhaps lost my mind. Listen, Jesus' death was only loving if it was doing something for us. It's only because of the fact that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, that Jesus' death is the ultimate demonstration of love. Out of love for us, he died in order to make a way for our sins to be forgiven. Jesus didn't simply cover over our guilt, or wave the penalty, or turn a blind eye. No, through his death, he did away with it forever. Now, sometimes people ask me to try to explain in a little more detail how all of this actually works. How does Jesus dying for sin remove my guilt before God? Honestly, I don't know exactly. If you're hoping for something a bit more than that, sorry, I've disappointed you. But it is easy, I think, to see that a lot of injustices, they do require some kind of restitution, some kind of payback, don't they? I mean, imagine if... At the end of the meeting, I go out into the car park and Jodie has got there ahead of me and she's behind the wheel of a car, kind of revving the engine. She sees me coming and accelerates her car into the side of my car and completely writes it off. And I go up to Jodie and say, Jodie, what, what were you thinking? Uh, and Jodie says, sorry, I don't know what came over me. I, I just saw red and boom. I say, it's, it's okay, it's okay, and you, uh, you don't need to worry about it. Just say, no, 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 uh, Mark will pay for it all, it's, it's fine. I say, no, 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 don't worry, I forgive you. If I forgive Jodie, then what am I doing? Well, I'm not making the damage magically disappear, it's still there. In effect, I'm agreeing to pay the penalty myself. And at the cross, that's what God did. He agreed to pay our penalty for us. It's like when someone commits an injustice against us that makes us suffer. Often, I think the way we deal with our suffering is to make them suffer. It, like if someone's rude or harsh towards me, then sad to say my natural reaction is often to retaliate and try and make them suffer for what they've done to me. However, if I choose to forgive them, that means that I'm not going to pay them back for their injustice, but will absorb the sting of it into myself and give them a mercy and a respect that they just don't deserve. At the cross, that's what God did. He absorbed the sting of our insult into himself. Now, like I say, I don't understand it all. But at the end of the day, I know it works ultimately because God says it does. A guy called J.I. Packer, he puts it like this. 
How it is possible for Jesus to bear our penalty, we do not claim to know any more than we know how it was possible for him to be made man. But that he bore it is the certainty on which all our hopes rest. So I can't stand here and tell you exactly how it all works, but what I can tell you is that the Bible is clear that apart from the blood of Christ, there is no lasting forgiveness of sins. As verse 22 puts it, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I want you to notice, the verse doesn't simply say that guilt is removed. It says God goes further than that. Don't just remove our guilt, he makes us pure. Forgiveness means that you are released from the negative consequences of guilt. Purity means you are made into something new. And that is what Jesus' blood shed on the cross does for us. It purifies us, it makes us into someone new. One of the best illustrations that I've heard about this comes from a book by someone called Mark Driscoll called Death by Love. He tells a story about one of his friends. He says, a friend of mine had been married to a woman he dearly loved for many years. Yet they were never as close and as intimate as he desired and he could not figure out why. It was because his wife was filled with shame. She'd been molested as a girl, raped as a young woman, promiscuous throughout much of her teenage years. She even cheated on her husband during their engagement and didn't share these shameful dark secrets with him. After many years, she finally told her husband what she had done and what had been done to her. The truth devastated her husband, who would never have married her had he known of her infidelity during their engagement. At this point, she feared that her husband would leave her and want nothing more to do with her. And to her horror, he just walked out. He left their home, and she didn't know where he was going or if he would ever return. But he did something unexpected. He went to the shop and purchased for her a new, clean, white nightgown. He returned home and asked her to get undressed and clothe herself in white, which she did. He then said that he had chosen to see her not by what she had done or by what had been done to her, but instead solely by what Jesus had done for her to forgive her and cleanse her defilement. He embraced her and prayed for her, and she wept tears that purified her soul as her sin was put away from her by the love of Jesus and her husband, who was filled with the Spirit of God." That's a picture of what Jesus' blood does. It doesn't simply remove the condemnation, it clothes, it dresses in purity. Forgiveness tells you, you can go free. The promise of being made pure tells you, you are cherished, so please come. That's the first thing the blood of Jesus does for us, it moves us from guilt to purity. Here's the second thing. It takes us from dead works 
to loving service. From works that are dead to service that's motivated by love. Verse 14, reading from the New International Version, says this, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, how much more then will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? You know, religion is filled with all kinds of works. You've got to meet this standard. You've got to be good enough in this area. You've got to jump through this hoop. You've got to get over this hurdle. But according to Hebrews 6 verse 1, all of these works, all of these attempts are effectively dead. It's like without the gospel, without the good news of what Jesus has done, the reason we try to do those good works is to try and get God to approve of us. But if you're doing good so that God will reward you for it, if you think about it, that's not really loving God. It's more a case of loving yourself. Let's say, for example, that you own some really nice holiday home by the sea. And I found out about it. And I hear a rumor that sometimes you allow your closest friends to use your holiday home by the sea for free. And I think, hmm, if I take so-and-so out for a meal and steer the conversation around to their holiday home, maybe they will feel obligated to offer it to me for free. That's not love for you. That's an investment. I'm thinking for a 30 or 40 pound, if I really want to get a result, 60 pound dinner, I can score a free week at the holiday house by the sea. Religion leads you to dead works because you are just doing the dead works to be accepted by God. Whereas the gospel gives you God's acceptance up front as a free gift. And the result in you is a whole new motivation. You, you begin to serve God because you love God, because you are grateful to him. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. In religion, you do good works in order to be accepted by God. The gospel liberates you, sets you free to do good works because you have already been accepted by God. John Newton told the story about a converted slave owner. It might even have been himself. This, this guy used to save his money and go to the slave auctions to purchase slaves and then promptly set them free. On one of these occasions, he told the slave they were free, and they turned around and said to him, what do you mean? I, I don't understand. You, you, you bought me. Don't I have to go with you? He goes, no, no, no. I, I've bought you to set you free. It's, you can go and do whatever you like. Uh, and the previous slave says, you mean, I'd have to pay you back. I, 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 no, 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 you are completely free. The released slave turns around and says, now that I'm free, I choose to go with you and be your servant. It's perhaps this story that inspired John Newton to write a hymn with these words. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we've seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, transforms a slave into a child. 
and duty into choice. Do you understand? The blood of Jesus sets you free from dead works and it gives you the motivation to now freely choose to live to serve him. At the end of the day, religious rituals and efforts and works, they can't ever fully take away sin. Only the blood of Jesus takes away sin. It doesn't just cover your sin, it removes the guilt and transforms you from the inside out. That's the second thing. Here's the third thing. The blood of Jesus, it moves us from dread to longing. Dread to longing. Verse 27, And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. You know, I think that right there is one of the biggest changes that the gospel makes in us. Like, we used to have this sense of dread before God. Fear of him. Nervousness. We're unworthy. But the gospel gives us a love for God and a deep longing for him. I mean, and all the time you, you, you fear judgment. When you secretly think God is angry with you, you don't really want to be anywhere close to God, do you? But when you're assured of his love and acceptance for you, that's when you start to eagerly desire being around him. And the gospel gives us that sense before God. Rather than fearing judgment, we begin to eagerly long for God. So three changes. The blood of Jesus brings us from guilt to purity, from dead works to loving service, from dread to longing. Now, that's all well and good, but I think there are maybe a a, a couple of potential objections to all of this, and you might have got there ahead of me. Some people, maybe you, say, well, I, I know in my head that God's forgiven me, but in all reality, I still can't forgive myself. You ever heard someone say that? Listen, when you make that statement, what you're saying is that your opinion of yourself matters more to you than God's opinion. It's like you have this standard to reach before you feel like you have any worth or value. It might be a standard that your parents set for you. If you don't get these grades or have this kind of a job, then you're a failure. Or maybe it's one you've created for yourself. Whatever the source, you have to base your worth on what God thinks about you. You don't have worth because you're better than others or because you've reached some standard. You have worth because God in his grace has chosen to set his affection on you. And you've got to find your identity in that. The point is, that God has forgiven you. He accepts you. He cherishes you. And so all those accusing voices can now be silenced once and for all. I heard a story about a little boy who accidentally killed his next-door neighbor's pet cat. 
He was playing around with his catapult, the clue in the name there, with his catapult, and accidentally hit the cat with a stone. He desperately looks around, doesn't think anyone has seen the dastardly deed, so he goes and gets a spade, digs a hole, and buries the cat. A couple of days later, it turns out his sister has seen the whole thing. And after much pleading, she finally agrees not to say anything to the next-door neighbour. But from that point on, every chore that he's doing around the house, she'd whisper in his ear, Remember the cat? This went on for several months. Every time his sister was supposed to do the dishes or clean the car or whatever, she'd simply remind him of the cat and he would begrudgingly do all the work. But eventually, it all got too much for him. He couldn't take it anymore. So he plucks up the courage, goes round to see his neighbour, bursts into tears and confesses everything. To his surprise, the next-door neighbour embraces him and thanks him before explaining that she had seen the whole thing and had been waiting for him to come round and apologise. She said, look, I was watching from the bedroom window. I saw it all. You've got to know, I forgave you then. I was just wondering how long it would take you to be honest and confess to me. It's like he had lived in captivity to his sister for all those months when all the time he'd already been forgiven. Listen, when you understand that God has already forgiven you, even though there might be all these voices reminding you of what you've done, you can tell them all to shut up in Jesus' name. So don't let anyone say to you, remember the cat. Because God has taken care of it all. You can now walk in freedom. Now, of course, if there are people here and you've wronged someone, don't hear me wrong, you do need to go to them. You do need to still ask for forgiveness. You need to make restitution, put things right wherever, however you can. But through it all, the real guilt that you feel, those deep feelings of unsettledness, the ultimate peace you need can only ever be found through the blood of Jesus' cross and the power of new life in his resurrection. So that's the first objection dealt with. Here's the second one, and I'll end with this. Some people say, look, I know that I'm forgiven. The guilt's gone. But you know what? I still feel such shame over what I've done. It's like, even if you can deal with and move through the guilt, sometimes you can't shake the sense of shame that so often goes with it. You see, shame is subtly different to guilt. It's the question of, what kind of person am I who could do something like that? Or, how could I bring so much dishonor to them? And what will they think of me if they ever found out? Let's say, for example, that I got caught embezzling the Inran revenue and I had to pay a £50,000 fine and spend two years in prison. Now, if I paid my fine and served my sentence my legal guilt would be gone, wouldn't it? But walking back into the church here, 
I may well still feel this sense of shame. This gnawing concern about letting you all down and how you'll now view me. Now here's the thing. If this way of thinking, if this mindset spreads and permeates through the whole church, then really our life together becomes more a matter of performance. Every Sunday, we put on our best Christian mask, take a deep breath, head to church, hoping that we don't get found out. And although, let's be honest, this is a pretty common way of thinking, is absolutely disastrous. You see, the reality is, not one of us is good enough. And we can only keep up the facade, the pretense, for a little while before the cracks begin to show. And so, when we feel like we've made a mess of things, the last place on earth we want to be is with the rest of the church. I mean, we're supposed to look Christian here. We're supposed to look perfect here. So, when we know we can't remotely pretend that things are all together, it's easier simply not to come anymore. But that's to completely miss the point. To quote a guy called Sam Albury, we're not Jesus' PR agents and he's not our client. No, we're broken men and women and he is our saviour. It's not the case that I need to look good so that Jesus can look good. No, I need to be honest about my colossal spiritual need so that he can look all-sufficient. At the end of the day, I don't increase so he can increase. To quote John the Baptist, I decrease so he can increase. Which at least in part means being honest about my flaws and not embarrassed about them. Can we just try and imagine the difference that this would make to our church life? Rather than having a stigma about being anything less than spiritually sorted, we can gather as a group of people who are open and free about our colossal spiritual need. The assumption stops being, we have to be good if we're coming here, and instead becomes, in all honesty, you have to be a real mess to come here. <laughs> Thank goodness I'm not the only one. Which do you think sounds most inviting? Which environment is most likely to remove the power of shame? Surely it's the one that welcomes and accepts people warts and all. You know, I desperately want Church Central to not only profess that we believe in God's grace, but to be a community, a family of people who are living in a culture of grace. A community where weakness isn't excluded but valued. Where we can be honest without fear of rejection. Where our mistakes aren't met with disapproval but grace. Again and again and again and again. A place where instead of constantly feeling embarrassed about being found out, we can experience the joy and relief of knowing we're all ultimately in the same boat. No one here is too low, too far gone, too needy, too anything to worry about not fitting in. If you like, 
Our testimony isn't that I was a mess, then Jesus pitched up, and now I've got everything together. Look at me now. But I was a mess. And if truth be told, I still am in part. But I'm a mess who belongs to Jesus. A mess that I know he's committed to sorting out. He came to me. Through thick and thin, he has stuck with me. And he continues, even today, to be my all in all. Or in the words, again, of John Newton, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Listen. To remove the hold of guilt and shame and condemnation on our lives, grace needs to be not just a formal doctrine or something we sing about, but a felt reality. And I think for that to happen, we need to believe with all our heart that Jesus has done all the necessary work to deal with all of our guilt, and for that to then motivate us to overcome shame by working together to make this church a community, a family, where people can come and be real without fear of being condemned, judged, or rejected.